just had a message come through while we were singing that, and someone mentioned it to me, and then more information came through. Hamas has apparently declared war on Israel. They fired 5,000 rockets into Israel this morning. And all that does is remind us that we're that much closer to the return of the Lord. But you know, Jesus said something to the Jews when he rebuked them for their unbelief. He said, you will not see me henceforth until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I think we fail to make the application of that in our lives. Because when we read the book of Revelation, and everyone always gets excited about the book and all the things that it contains, we oftentimes fail to remember that it ends with a prayer. The final prayer recorded in the New Testament, I believe, is a prayer that we are supposed to be praying. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I pray that prayer every day. I want to encourage you to pray it because I often wonder if the Lord is going to delay until the bride begins to pray and ask that he will come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. As we open again to the book of Jude, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray for the nation of Israel as well. Father in heaven, as we come before you now, especially in light of the news of recent events, we pray for the nation of Israel. We know, Lord, that many there are uh, still hardened in heart and rebellious against you. Uh, we do not know who are yours, but you do. We do not know everything that's going to have to take place until they say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. But what we see in Scripture is the terrible time of tribulation. Father, as we come before you now, our prayer is with those uh, many that we know there, uh, many that we love, many who are dear to us. We do pray for your protection on them. We pray that you use this to open the eyes and the hearts of those who continue in unbelief, rejecting the greatest one who ever rose up in this earth from their midst, in the very land where the Lord Jesus walked and worked and displayed your love and your grace. They continue to harden their hearts. So, Father, we pray that you will begin to break through that hardness and to open the eyes of many to the saving message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we turn back to the book of Jude, we begin with the unbelief of Israel. How amazing the perfect timing that, that you have prepared for us. So open our eyes as well. May we receive the truth you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we have three examples before us of rebellion, it's very easy for us to think of these only in terms of unbelievers. I want to disabuse you of that idea. 
The Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. There's a warning here for you and I. The warning is against the unbelief of believers. I would remind you that in Exodus 4 and verse 31 and in Exodus 14 and verse 31, we are told that the children of Israel believed in the Lord. When they saw the plagues, when they saw the mighty works, and they saw the power of God delivering them through the Red Sea, they believed. The problem that we see in verse 5 is not the failure of unbelievers, but the failure of believers. I asked earlier, what is the link between Israel in unbelief, angels leaving their domain, and Sodom and Gomorrah? I want to show you the link that exists. And it basically has to do with the fallen realm deceiving the visible realm into unbelief and immorality. Let's consider, for example, the children of Israel. You'll remember the problem. The problem was their failure to go into the promised land. I want you to turn with me to the book of Numbers. Go back to the book of Numbers and chapter 13. In Numbers 13, beginning in verse 25, Moses has sent the spies into the land of Canaan. The spies departed and came back to Moses and Aaron on all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. In other words, they had all the evidence that everything God had promised was true. They told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us and it truly flows with milk and honey. God's word is true. This is his fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw there the descendants of Anak. In other words, the giants. Caleb, of course, quiets the people in verse 30 and says, let us go up at once and take possession. We are well able to overcome it, not because of their strength, but of course, because of the grace of God. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. They are stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that it devours its inhabitants. All the people who we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And of course, as a result of this, God tells them that he is not going to take them into the land. They are going to die in the wilderness. Satan used a distraction to get their eyes off their own spiritual condition and on the battle that was on the outside. They lost the inner battle because they focused on the outer battle. This is something that we all do. Unless you think that this applies only to 
unbelievers, I want to remind you the danger in this verse is the unbelief of believers. Turn with me to Numbers 20. Remember that God destroyed those in the wilderness who believed not. Numbers 20, verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes. The rock had been smitten once, it was not to be smitten again. Speak to the rock and it will yield its water. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that that rock was Christ. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of the rock? What happened to Moses here? He lost the inner battle because he focused on the outer battle. Same problem. He got his eyes off his own spiritual relation to the Lord, his own fellowship with the Lord, his own communion with the Lord to the problem. The problem was the people. The problem was their unbelief. By focusing on their unbelief, Moses falls into unbelief. Read on with me. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. How gracious of God to provide even when we disobey. Right? Verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, Because you did not believe me, and hallow or glorify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Because you, Moses, the great leader, the great legislator, the lawgiver, one of the greatest men in all of Scripture, because you did not believe me, you are not going to enter into the land. We often do not think of the fact that Moses was among those who did not enter the land because of unbelief. I bring this to you as a challenge because this is our great danger. Our great danger is the minute we take our eyes off of our relationship to the Lord, our fellowship with the Lord, our focus on His Word, our obedience to Him, we get distracted by something else that's going on. And as a result, we end up failing as well. In Hebrews chapter 3, well, I could, uh, I won't, I, I don't have time to read all of these. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12. You remember that Moses talks about all of our fathers were under the, the cloud, all of our fathers passed through the sea, all of our fathers ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. Once again, they had all of the spiritual provision and all of the spiritual advantage, but because of their unbelief, and I stress again, the unbelief of unbelievers, if you'll, or of believers. Just turn with me to Hebrews 3. It'll reinforce the point that I'm trying to make. <clears throat> 
Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, you're sitting here, the voice of the Lord is speaking as His Word is taught. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and they saw my works for 40 years. You know what happens when we get to a point as believers who are not believing? God continues to demonstrate His power, but we gain no advantage from it. We gain no benefit, no blessing from it. He says, they saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. Not outside, the problem is on the inside. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The problem here is not, as some teach, loss of salvation. The problem here is loss of spiritual growth to maturity, loss of victory, and therefore loss of blessing. Therefore, verse 12, beware, brethren. This is not addressed to unbelievers. It's addressed to you and I. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. At the very moment you're tested, right now we've got a war starting in the Middle East. We've got a nation that has completely destroyed our military. We've put all of our soldiers through sensitivity training and every other kind of idiocy except preparation to fight and win wars. Veterans are telling their children, don't go into the military. It's not worth it anymore. They don't want to fight for this regime that exists at the present time with all of its evil and all of its corruption. We're being told if you're born a boy, you can be a girl. If you're born a girl, you can be a boy. Don't worry, men can menstruate. Don't worry, men can get pregnant. And if you stand up and speak the truth, which is absolutely and scientifically verifiable, you can end up going to jail. There are people in prison around the world today because they spoke the truth. We are living in an insane asylum. We are living in a, not just a country, but a world that has lost its mind. And why has this happened? Same reason it happened to Israel, same reason that it happened with the angels, and we're going to see the same reason that it happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. I remind you again, there's a link between the three. Verse 13 of Hebrews 3, exhort one another daily. I'm exhorting you right now because it's today. And as long as it's today, as long as we're in this world, as long as we wake up every morning and it's a new day, we need to be encouraging. Husbands need to be encouraging wives. Wives need to be encouraging husbands when we're in danger of getting distracted by the chaos that's going on all around us. We need to come back to the reality. It's the battle here that counts. There's a little poem that says there's no defeat in life save from within, and until you're beaten there, you're bound to win. Fight the battle within. Fight the battle of faith, and you will win. Exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives. And what does it deceive us to? Before anything else, it deceives us to lose faith. 
It deceives us to lose faith. The children of Israel go into the promised land. They see that all the promises of God are true. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And what do they do? They get their eyes off the evidence of the truth and onto the giants. By the way, those giants are part of that link that I keep reminding you of. The deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, for we have become partakers, the word could be partners, we have become partners or partakers of Christ, next word, if. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. That's a big if. What is the danger that the author is warning us of? He wraps it all up down in verse 19. We see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. What is your greatest danger today? Unbelief. The moment we begin to doubt, we begin to suffer defeat. The moment that we begin to question, the moment that uh, that little voice that whispers in our ear maybe. God's word is not true. Maybe, you know, you have failed beyond the point of no return. Maybe God is not able to deliver you at this time. Maybe that promise doesn't apply the way that you thought it applied. Maybe it doesn't apply to everyone. Maybe it applies to others, but not you. That little seed of doubt. That's the beginning of defeat. Where does that seed of doubt come from? Who sows that seed? The Lord Jesus told a parable, and in his parable, a man went into his field, and he sowed good seed in his field. But at night, an enemy came, and an enemy sowed tares. Who is that enemy? Well, we know that enemy is Satan himself. But too often, we fail to recognize his presence and realize exactly what he is doing in his very subtle way. We think he's nowhere around when he's always closest. As he begins to sow the seeds of doubt and the seeds of fear in our hearts and our souls. Well, we've dealt with the children of Israel. We've dealt with the danger of the unbelief of believers. And by the way, I come back to our Arizona conference, which is coming up. If you're interested in picking up the classes off the website, it's going to be dealing with the need of the saved for salvation. The title is The Salvation of the Saints. You and I need deliverance every day. Christ delivered us once for all at the cross. The moment we believe in him, we have eternal life. Nothing is ever going to take that away. But he is our deliverer, our shepherd, our rescuer, moment by moment and day by day. And we need that constant deliverance. We need deliverance from ourselves. We need deliverance from our sin. We need deliverance from the world. We need deliverance from our enemy, who is ultimately Satan himself. So coming back to the book of Jude, what's the link between Israel and the angels? Well, let's go back and look at the angels. I just got you back to Jude, now I'm going to take you to the front of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6. Here's 
Here are the angels who sinned. Genesis 6, verse 1, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days will be 120 years. That doesn't mean your lifespan. That means the time between the infiltration of the angels and the flood. Verse 4, there were Nephilim on the earth in those days. And also afterward, if the Nephilim all got wiped out of the flood, how come when the children of Israel go into the promised land, there are seven tribes of giants? Afterward, another attack. What was the purpose of the angelic infiltration? To corrupt the human race to a point so that the Savior could not come into the world. Do you know how close Satan came to keeping Christ from coming into the world? There were only eight pure humans left. Noah and his family. When you read that Noah was... Uh, Drop down to verse 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. That means he was a believer and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. There are three things said about Noah. Number one, he was a believer. Number two, he was a pure human. And number three, he lived in fellowship with God. Noah and his family were all that were left. Eight pure humans. Now, I do realize that many people teach this, that it was the uh, godly line of Seth that mingled with nasty women in the back alley. Well, we've got a lot of problems with that. Number one, there is no such thing mentioned in Scripture as a godly line of Seth. Number two, there is no such thing as a godly line anyway. We are all sinners. Number three, good men screwing around, pardon my putting it plainly, with nasty women doesn't produce Nephilim. This was an angelic infiltration, the ultimate goal of which was to keep the Savior from coming into the world. And it came very close to succeeding. Now do you begin to see a link it was because of the activity of these angels that there were giants still in the land in the time of Israel when they went in. I wish I had time. The uh, Rephaim, the Anakim, all of these different names actually describe a different type of Nephilim. There were at least six or seven different kinds of Nephilim that were on the earth. They had different characteristics, they had different appearance, they had different powers, supernatural powers. While we're sitting here today and we're looking across our nation and we're seeing the corruption and the evil and the darkness that is spreading over our land and then we look internationally and we see war in Ukraine and now war in Israel and there are about five other hot spots that are about to blow up in this world and we look around and it's as if the world has come unglued and it has. And what is the root of it all? Well, it all begins with the rebellion of Satan and his deception of members of the human race. And we are actually experiencing an infiltration 
at the present time? How has our country gone the way it's gone within such a short time? It's a demonic, a fallen, angelic infiltration. How have people lost their ever-loving minds? It is an angelic infiltration. You are living in one of the most astounding, amazing, and perilous times in all of human history. We are alive at the greatest time to be alive. Because to stand today, to be firm today, to be strong in your faith today, to be a witness to Jesus Christ today, it's going to go down in the record books in eternity. We have the opportunity to be a light shining in a dark place. Come back to Jude. Oh, don't come back to Jude. Come to 1 Peter. I want to talk a little more about these angels. If you doubt my interpretation, it actually isn't mine, but if you doubt the interpretation I've given you, let's see if Peter can help you out. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom, that is, by the power of the Spirit, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Well, who are these spirits in prison? Well, they're the ones who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. How long did God's long-suffering wait? We already saw it was 120 years. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight, were saved through water. The main focal point here is who are the spirits in prison? Well, they're the sons of God who infiltrated the human race. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned. What did these angels do? Well, it says they sinned and he cast them down to hell. The word hell there is not hell in the Greek. It's Tartarus. It's the abyss. It's the bottomless pit and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Well, who were these angels who sinned? Well, they were the ones at the time of Noah. Look at verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in a flood on the world of the ungodly. And what does he link it to? turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And I must point out to you the next verse because it tells us that he delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the conduct of the wicked. He tells us in verse 9, God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Temptation there can be trials, testing, temptation, and reserve the unjust for punishment. What these verses are saying to you and I, there is nothing for you to fear in what's going on out there in the world. We have no reason to fear. You see Christians all the time 
they're wringing their hands. Oh, did you hear what's, what's happening in Israel? What's happening next door to you? What's happening down the street from you? Why should we be surprised that we are in a spiritual war? Why should we be surprised when that spiritual conflict comes close to us, touches us, even in our homes? Even when we raise up children who are taught the Word of God and somewhere along the line they let some crackpot professor fill their head full of all kinds of BS and they end up denying the very truth that they once believed. Why should we be surprised? We're in a spiritual battlefield. This is happening to people. It's heartbreaking. It tears your soul in two. But we have to understand why it's happening. We have to understand where it's coming from, and we need to understand where it's going to. The angels who cohabited with human women and produced Nephilim are the spirits who are chained in prison, Jesus went and made a victorious proclamation to them. You know why he went and made, preached? It says preach. The word Russo simply means a proclamation of some kind. It was a victorious proclamation. Why would he do that? Because they were in the abyss. They didn't know how their experiment turned out. They didn't know whether they had been able to keep the Messiah from coming into the world, so he dies on the cross for the penalty of the sins of the world, is buried, and then goes into Tartarus and speaks to the angels who are chained there and says, Ta-da! Your plan failed. Because you see, they would have had just the faintest glimmer of hope that maybe if the plan still worked, even after we got cast into Tartarus, maybe we still have a chance of getting out. His appearance showed them that their condemnation was sure. Uh, he also went into paradise, by the way, because didn't he tell the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And what did he do in paradise? He walked in and said to all those from the Old Testament who had trusted in his coming and been waiting for his victory, and he said, the victory is won. What a great cheer must have gone up. That poor man, Lazarus, who laid at the rich man's gate, laying there in Abraham's bosom, the place of paradise, when they saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ walk in. And then what did he do? He gathered up all of those saints of the Old Testament in paradise, and he transported them into the presence of the Father. We know that paradise is no longer in the earth. It's in the third heaven. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians 12, Paul goes to paradise, the third heaven. Isn't it nice when you can just nail things down and you just know that it's absolutely clear and sure and certain? But I want to ask you a question again. What is the link between Israel and the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah? Think about Sodom and Gomorrah for a minute. Think about the fact that those cities that were destroyed for their rampant degenerate immorality had every evidence of truth. 
You'll remember that the kings of the north came down, Chedderly Omer and his cohorts came down and swept through that entire land and they took Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. If you're interested, Deuteronomy 29:23, Zoar, Adma, and Zeboim, the five cities of the plain, also mentioned in Hosea 11:8. And what did they do? They gathered them all up, but they got one guy that Abraham was concerned about, and that was his nephew Lot. What did Abraham do? Lot and his family. Well, Abraham says there's only a half a million of them, only a couple hundred thousand of them. Who knows how many there were? Thousands upon thousands. I've got 318 trained soldiers. We can take them, no problem. He took his 318 trained servants and he went and he annihilated the coalition. And he rescued Lot and his family. You see, that's what happens when you don't get distracted by the giants. That's what happens when you don't get distracted by the size. That's what happens when you don't get distracted by the power. You just see the task, the path that God has set before you. Remember, calling is to relationship riches. By the way, riches include power and a road that God intends for us to follow. If this is the path he intends me to follow, nothing that's out there is anything that I have to be worried about. And Abraham delivered him. Well, who saw all that? The king of Sodom. Go back to Genesis 14. I'm not going to turn there at the moment, but just jot down. Go back there and you, what do you find? You find Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and here he's delivered not only Lot, but the remnant of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zeboim and the other places. And what did they see? They saw the victory of a man of faith with 318 servants over a massive coalition and army. They saw Mephibosheth, the priest of the Most High God, come out and meet Abraham. They saw him offer to him bread and wine, anticipating 2,000 years before Christ came into the world, that time when he would gather with the disciples in the upper room and administer the bread and the cup to them. That symbol, as I mentioned last night, of marriage. They saw all of it. Did it change their heart? How many things have we seen God do in just the last few years that are absolutely miraculous against all odds, against all predictions? It happens on a daily basis. You know what we focus on? In the so-called COVID pandemic, Did you hear there's a new virus? I'm going to die when God calls me home. Amen. So are you. What are we worried about? I might get sick and die. 
What's the worst thing that could happen? I could get sick and die. What does that mean? I'll be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. I'll be free of this world. I'll be free of my limitations. I'll be free of pain, fear, sorrow, suffering, tears, and death. Oh, I just don't know what I would do if I didn't have pain, sorrow, suffering, fear, and death. What in the world do we worry about? My mother just died. She was 97. We, we prayed that God would heal her, and he just didn't do it. Why didn't God heal my mother? Did you ever stop and think if God healed everyone Christians prayed for, no Christian would ever die? Our, our thinking gets twisted by the world out there. We cling with our fingernails to this life. When we have so much to look forward to ahead. There's a book that was written about the Vikings, and of course, many of the Vikings, as you know, became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Eric the Red, you may remember. Eric the Red did his journeys and his travels. Many people have never read this because history books don't include important things to be an evangelist for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Vikings had a saying, laughing shall I die. Well, I'm going to change that one. Singing shall I die. If I have the strength in the hour of my death, assuming the Lord doesn't come first, which it's almost getting to be a toss-up here. <laughs> death, rapture, death, rapture. He's already chosen. He's already determined. Nothing I do is going to make any difference. But I know one thing. If it's death, let's die singing. If it's the rapture, let's go up singing. Amen. So Sodom and Gomorrah and all of those people had all of the evidence in the world. Could I ask you again, what is the link? Let me see if I can lay it out for you. It was the giants in the land that the children of Israel feared. The giants were in the land because of the angels who rebelled. How did the angels rebel? They rebelled by going after strange flesh. Look here. Verse 7, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. I want you to notice two little words in verse 7 that link it to verse 6, which links it to verse 5. The first is, as... In other words, take verse 5 about Israel and verse 6 about the angels and now relate it to Sodom and Gomorrah as a better translation. Some of your English translations may actually read this way, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, just as means like the previous examples. And the cities around them in a similar manner to these who are the these 
that they're similar to the angels of the previous verse who departed from the domain that God had put them in, infiltrated the human race, and got involved in sexual immorality. Can I just point this out to you? Whenever there is an influx, an infiltration of fallen, angelic, demonic activity, you will always have an, a massive explosion of sexual immorality. Why is it? Because it's the greatest defiance to God. Why does the Bible call idolatry adultery? Because it is a spiritual form of the physical unfaithfulness. Wherever there is spiritual adultery, there will be physical adultery. Wherever there is physical adultery, you can guarantee there's idolatry. Now, I'm talking to believers here, the majority of you. Hopefully there are some unbelievers that this is going to hit. If you have hidden sins in your life, I'm going to tell you they are going to be exposed. If there are things that you are not confessing, if there are things that you are not overcoming, if there are things that you are not allowing God to deliver you from, I'm telling you right now, they're going to be on the front page news. Deal with them while you can. God is patient. God is long-suffering. God is merciful. But He will not allow rebellion, particularly among those who are his children. He will expose you, and he'll do it because he loves you. He will do it to bring victory. But you can have victory beforehand. And that victory comes by saying, I'm no longer going to live a double life. I am no longer going to have hidden secrets in my life. I'm going to live a life that is open to the world and open to the Lord and have nothing to hide. That's the only way for a believer to live. Don't try to live a double life. Don't try to live with hidden sins. You know, in the Old Testament, the statement, be sure your sin will find you out. Why will it be discovered? because God knows the destructiveness of it. What is it that makes sin, sin? Do you know why God hates sin so much? Number one, it is a violation of His holiness. It's an affront to His holiness. Number two, it is damaging to you and everyone around you. It hurts you. Parents do not like to watch their children stick their hand in the fire and burn their fingers off. Parents do not like to watch children think they can fly and jump out of a third-story window and bash their brains out. Any normal, loving parent will do everything that they can to protect their child. Sometimes that means letting them hurt themselves. And God does that with us. But He will not tolerate rebellion and disobedience forever. David thought that he could cover his sin. The harder he tried to cover it, the more damaging and destructive it became. And then finally it blew up and it blew out in the open. And here is David 
You know, we, we don't even really consider the tremendous damage. The entire nation, a nation that was blessed like no other nation on the face of the earth, that was rich, that was powerful. He had conquered all of his enemies. It was just absolutely the greatest time to be alive, and he brought the entire nation to ruin. That nation never fully recovered. And then you know what happened? He had a son come along who was the wisest man that ever lived and made the mistakes of a fool and ended up falling into idolatry. Again, idolatry is called adultery because it is on the spiritual plane that which unfaithfulness on the physical plane demonstrates. The children of Israel in Exodus 32, while Moses was on the mountain receiving the law, here is the glory of God resting on the mountain. They can see the Shekinah glory. They hear the thundering of the voice of God. They know that Moses is up there communing with the Lord. And what do they do? They say, we don't know what happened to Moses. Make us God so that we can worship him. And even gullible and stupid Aaron takes their earrings and their bracelets and their gold and melts it down and makes a golden calf. Where did they get the idea for a golden calf? Came right out of Egypt. Every single one of the plagues was a judgment on the gods of Egypt. And then they bring the gods with them. And what did they do? It says, it says that as they worshiped the calf, they sat down to eat and drink. And then what did they do? Well, in very kind language, they rose up to play. That's a euphemism for a sex orgy. And if you know anything about Baal worship or you know anything about the worship of Molech, it always involved idolatry, the worship of a false god, the sacrifice of their children, and sexual immorality. And the sexual immorality, and I have studied this in Cambridge Ancient History and many other sources, and it went from immoral sex, men with women, to immoral sex, men with men, women with women, to immoral sex with beasts, bestiality. Oh, and it went worse. You remember where Isaiah rebukes the people of his day? He said they commit adultery with sticks and stones. They made images of male and female goddesses with accentuated sexual attributes. And once they had degraded themselves from what we would call natural to unnatural to abnormal to disgusting... Because you see, once you start living for self-gratification, enough is never enough. There's got to be something new. There's got to be something more exciting. There's got to be something just a little bit more kinky, something just a little bit more strange, and you're on a downward slide to divine judgment. Our nation is under the wrath of God. And God is going to pour His wrath out on this nation and you and I are going to watch it. As a matter of fact, we are watching it. It is happening around us all the time, but we are only in the beginning of the downward slide.
So I think now you can see why he links together the Exodus generation, the angels that sinned, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 8, likewise. He now comes from his historical examples of perversion and degeneracy and divine judgment to the people of his day. And what does he say? Likewise, these dreamers. You know, you're living in an age of dreamers. <clears throat> We're living in a time when millions of dollars are being made by dreamers. They write books. They keep people constantly on edge. Oh, did you hear what happened? Oh, this means this, and that means that. Oh, it all fell apart. Well, don't worry, I'll come up with a new one for next week. And you can have my book. It's only $30. Buy my book and read it. And the tragedy is that we have pastors standing in pulpits today who hardly ever get into this book right here because they're always in someone's book. And they're getting some idea from some doctor big, so-and-so, instead of being a humble student of the Word of God and reading absolute eternal truth that is going to stand forever. He calls them dreamers. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy. You know, if you... If you actually study all of the cross-references I give you in your notes, you could study the book of Jude for a month. Just following. You know, Jude's like, <clears throat> I've likened it to Hansel and Gretel. You remember the story of Hansel and Gretel? They got lost, so they dropped breadcrumbs. Jude is constantly throwing out little breadcrumbs. If we follow the breadcrumbs that he is dropping out for us, you're going to study from Genesis to Revelation. It's a small little book, but it has a scope as wide as the entire Bible. So in Deuteronomy 13... If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, he's saying there can be false prophets and they can speak things that will actually happen. There can be dreamers who give you signs. Satan has power. We saw this as early as the Exodus generation when Moses throws down his staff and it turns to a serpent and the wizards and the priests of Egypt did the same thing. How much satanic power would it take for a man to be able to throw a staff down and have it turn into a serpent? Pretty strong
Verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve, serve Him and hold fast to Him. Verse 5, but that prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. I want you to notice that in other passages, he says, if the prophets speak the word and it doesn't happen, or they give a sign and it doesn't happen, put them to death. But here he's saying, it doesn't matter whether it comes true or not. If they're trying to get you to go after false gods, that, that prophet, that dreamer of dreams should be put to death. Now, this is in the nation of Israel, which was in an Old Testament law covenant with God. We don't do this today. It's not our job to go out and assassinate dreamers of dreams. We simply know that they're not to be followed. You shall follow the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage. Do not let these people entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. You shall put away the evil from your midst. And he goes on and on. The point that I have you turn there for is that dreamer of dreams is a phrase that he's used from the very beginning. Dreamer of dreams. Jude says, likewise, these dreamers, what do they do? Well, here's another set of threes. I told you in your appendices you have 15 sets of threes. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. They defile the flesh. Why? Because they reject divine authority. How do you reject divine authority? Once you reject the authority of God, you have set up an idol in your life. Did you know that? How easy is it to set up an idol? Very easy. Turn your back on God. You will turn to something else. Something is going to take the place that only God should hold in your heart and in your soul. You are going to put on the throne of your soul where only Jesus Christ has a right to sit. You're going to put something else. It can be a person. It can be a goal something you're striving for. It can be a possession. It can be anything. It's what we set our heart and our affection and spend our time thinking about. There it is. This is what consumes my life. And the moment that thing takes the place that only Christ should hold, we're involved in spiritual adultery. Stay involved in spiritual adultery long enough, you will end up perverting sexuality some way. Why? Because that which is going on spiritually in your soul is already going to affect you in your outward conduct. It is going to manifest itself. Your thinking will manifest itself in your conduct. Again, the reason, spiritual adultery. What does Paul say? Every man that a sin commits is outside his body except sexual perversion. Sexual perversion destroys the body. So they defile the flesh. There can be a million different ways that this can be done. 
reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Arrogance and ignorance and perversion all mixed and mingled together. Now Jude does something that Peter, who he largely relies on, does not do. In fact, uh, he does something that I would say most of the other authors in the New Testament do not do. He quotes from a couple of apocryphal books. And this should not shock us because the Apostle Paul, I forget all the various references, but the Apostle Paul, I think in four or five different passages, quotes Greek philosophers. Remember when he writes to Titus and he's talking about the Cretans and he says one of their own prophets said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and, and slow bellies. In other words, they're gluttons, they're liars, and they're evil. And he's quoting one of their prophets and then he says, this witness is true. So there's nothing wrong with an author of scripture quoting someone else, as we understand, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're quoting something that's true. Here Jude quotes from the Assumption of Moses. It's an apocryphal book. It's a Jewish book that was written. There are many of them. Uh, they are not inspired scripture, but they do contain elements of truth. The book of Enoch, we're going to run into the book of Enoch. Verse 9 says, Then, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Here's the situation. The situation is the devil wants to claim the body of Moses. Why in the world would the devil want to claim the body of Moses? He had something he wanted to do with it. What do you suppose he may have wanted to do with it? My supposition is he would love to have had the body of Moses to resurrect to be the false prophet during the time of tribulation. When the Antichrist comes on the world, what does the scripture tell us? He is going to come, he who was and is not, and yet is to come. When Antichrist shows up on this earth, it's going to be someone the world will recognize from the past. Someone widely known. I won't go beyond that in speculation, but it's a very possible thing that Satan wanted to use the body of Moses for that. However, God had a plan for the body of Moses. We know that when Jesus stood on Mount Hermon on the Mount of Transfiguration, there with him was Moses and Elijah. What were they talking about? They were talking about his soon departure, referring to his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. The word for departure in that passage is his exodus. He was about to make his exodus from the world. Moses and Elijah are talking with him. Then we get to the book of Revelation, and we find that in the middle of the tribulation, there are two witnesses show up. Uh, that show up and they begin to uh, give their witness to the world, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And amazingly, they are performing signs and miracles like Moses and Elijah. I take the two witnesses to be Moses and Elijah. So there's a contention going on. The devil says, I claim this body. Possibly he claimed it because 
Moses failed to go into the promised land and was judged for his unbelief as we just read. The unbelief of believers is a dangerous thing. You know, as a child of God, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are times where your unbelief will do far more damage than the unbelief of any unbeliever. We need to think about that. Michael, who is the defender of Israel, according to Daniel chapter 12, steps forward and says, not so fast. You're not taking this body. But there's one thing he doesn't do, and this might shock you. Michael is believed to be the mightiest of the angels. As I said, he is seen as the defender of the children of Israel. Right now, there are rockets raining down on Israel. I want you to think about this. There are people dying. There are men, women, and children. There are cries of fear and anguish going on right now. Maybe it would be a good exercise for us to ask, if I were there, how well would I be doing? Michael is in the background standing up for their defense. Behind Michael, the greatest warrior that ever walked the face of the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Nothing will happen in that land beyond what he permits. The majority of the people there are unbelievers. We had a guide at one point when we went to Israel who was a young woman who said she grew up in Israel. She walked the land that Jesus walked. She had never heard the name of Jesus until she became a guide and had to learn to guide Christian groups in Israel. Never heard his name. There's a good side to what is going on right now in Israel. You know what it is? There are men and women who have been witnessed to who are now in stark, terrifying fear, who are falling on their knees and they're turning in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have to see it. I know it's happening because that's the way God works. When disaster strikes, there are always those souls who will never come to faith in any other way. Here's the final point about Michael. The greatest of the angels facing who used to be the greatest of the angels and fell. Did not dare... The word means to be bold, so bold as to do it. He did not dare to bring a railing accusation. What kind of railing accusation would you bring if you were Michael looking at your former commander, looking at the former high priest of the angelic realm who led a rebellion against the God of heaven and was cast out of his place and his position? What kind of accusation could you bring? Man, the things that you could... Throw in his face. How many times have you and I faced other believers? 
children of God, sons and daughters of glory, and thrown railing accusations in their face. God help us, my friends. If anyone ever had a right to hurl an accusation in the face of someone, it was Michael, who's now defending Israel against Satan, who wants to destroy Israel. And what does he say? The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. What a powerful, powerful rebuke. And the power of the rebuke is in direct proportion to the mildness of the words. I would suggest to you and I, in the provocations of the time in which we live, folks, I'm talking to me. You can ask my wife, but don't let her tell you too much. <laughs> there are times when I get something stuck in my teeth about what's going on, and I direct toward people. I, am, I stand before you guilty, I'm telling you, but I am rebuking myself right here. It is not our place to cast judgment on anyone. It is our place to be a witness of the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, walked this earth daily being provoked by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the religious leaders, and read his response, read his words, and he spoke to them in such a mild way until finally, and he's the only one who had the right to do it, in Matthew 23, he began to hurl woe in the face of the children of Israel, and eight times he repeated the woe because it was a perfect and a complete woe that meant this is the end of the nation. How often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you would not. In other words, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You will receive the fruit of your doing. You will receive the consequence of your choice. You will not see me henceforth until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what's going on right now in Israel? Is leading to them one day saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Pray for them. Pray that God's will be done and pray that many will turn to Jesus Christ in faith. I have a great idea. How about let's stop and have lunch. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace. And Father, I just want to especially thank you for the many men and women out there in the foyer that are working uh, I pray, Lord, that each one of us will take the time and have the consideration to thank them for what they're doing. This church has been so gracious to us. Uh, they have been so faithful over the years to support us, to pray for us. But Father, these people who are devoting their time and energy, they'd love to be in here with us, joining us, hearing the messages. They sacrifice so that they can serve us. What humble people help us, Lord, to show our appreciation to them. Bless the food that we're about to partake, especially bless the hands of those who have prepared, who have made it available. We ask, Father, that they will be so richly blessed for their humble service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.